Today's episode of Market Talk is brought to you by Growmark FS. Keeping up on the latest in ag is a challenge, to say the least. But there are experts nearby ready to help. You'll find them at your local FS. You can trust them to bring you customized agronomic, grain, and energy solutions born of the latest thinking. That's because FS specialists receive continuous training that keeps them current on the latest trends, practices, and technologies. So you'll get local expertise that's both exceptional and up-to-date. Visit FSSystem.com to learn how FS is bringing you what's next. Bringing you the ag information you need, this is Market Talk. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Well, wishing you a belated Merry Christmas. Thanks for joining us here today on Market Talk. I'm your host, Jesse Allen, as we take a look at issues impacting rural America and more here on today's show. Thanks for joining us. Busy one. We're going to be talking with Dr. Megan Niederwerder with the Swine Health Information Center coming up later in the show. Also going to be talking about water shortages in the western portions of the U.S. here also on the show today. But kicking things off, joining us now, he is the Business Growth Director of Agriculture at Osborne Bar Paramore, former FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce as we take a look at issues wrapping up the year here that was in 2022. Richard, always great to catch up with you, sir. Thanks for joining me today. Hope you're doing well. I am, Jesse. And uh, likewise, from my perspective, I always enjoy our conversations. And we get to, it seems like, talk about some important things that are going on in agriculture and the markets. And Mm -hmm. uh, so happy happy to be with you. Well, thank you for the time, as always. Um, as I mentioned there, kind of at the top, wrapping up uh, a busy year in agriculture, wrapping up the month of December, which was busy as well. I know we talked last uh, at the NAFB convention in Kansas City. There was a, a number of issues we tackled, and I think just uh, looking back here at the year that has gone on, Richard, I mean, right from the start of the year with the Ukraine-Russia war getting kicked off, uh, all the way here through to the end with different issues with the rail strike being averted and more. There's been a, a lot to digest in agriculture and in the markets here this year, Richard. You're exactly right, Jesse. And, you know, I would even add maybe one more issue that producers were dealing with going into spring planting of 2022, and that was the availability of inputs. You know, we there were, there were folks that had, uh, you know, traded seed technology seed, you know, in their warehouse or in their storage. And then either EPA said, you can't use that, or there were shortages for different chemistries. And so folks had to pivot in some cases, not maybe not plant the seed that they had in the warehouse or on storage. And then just, again, supply chain issues that were driving up prices for inputs because of scarcity and also just availability. And, you know, on that on that topic, I, I, I think, at least from what I hear, that a lot of that's been alleviated. There still may be some issues maybe around the edges, but a lot of that's been uh, been alleviated for sure. But we don't see a lot of we don't see a lot of price decline in some of those <laughs> inputs. So growers are going to have to be dealing with that as we go through the, you know, the these winter months and get ready for spring planting. 
Well, you brought up supply chains and the challenges we've seen there. And I mentioned, you know, we averted a rail strike. Uh, last time we talked, we were still kind of waiting for Congress to act. And then you know, Congress did end up acting and the president ended up acting. Yet I know I I've heard in some cases, so some of the uh, service from the class one railroads, et cetera, still kind of poor in certain areas in rural America. So even though, you know, we got the strike averted, you alluded to it, a lot of the challenges have been alleviated, uh, at least considerably, I would say, but it still feels like there's some challenges out there. And I'm sure maybe you're hearing from farmers and co-ops and more as well, that every now and then they might have trouble getting rail cars to, uh, you know, load up grain and send it to an end user. So I know there's still some challenges out there on that rail side. You know, I think we mentioned this a few episodes back, but Really, American agriculture and those uh, those industry partners that growers have have made some significant investments. I'd say uh, last ten years, last fifteen years for sure, in investing in rail loading facilities because of you know southern exports, maybe you know maybe moving commodities to the Pacific Northwest. You know, those facilities have to pay when that train comes off the rail, they have to pay demurrage or whatever other, you know, terminology you want to use because they've taken that train out of service to load it. And so they've really made some really efficient, fast loading facilities and more of them to load uh, these shuttle trains. And I've heard, you know, from the people that are managing those and from farmers that are, you know, that are hauling into those facilities, sometimes getting getting a train maybe when they need it is, can be a challenge. Um, you know, certainly when we've got a lot of volume at harvest, sometimes that can, you know, stop up, a, a, you know, a terminal or a, an elevator waiting on a train. Those aren't new issues. Um, but I do I do think that when you if you or I were in that case as a as a worker for the railroad um, and you didn't get ultimately what you were asking for. And I think, you know, frankly, I think they were asking for some additional sick days was kind of mm -hmm. the door. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think we'll get there. We'll get it resolved for sure. Um, but and, and, and just to say this, you know, the rail industry in the U.S. and uh, infrastructure that we have here is um, certainly a blessing and it's very much an asset, obviously, for uh, for commodity agriculture, both to get our commodities out of the of the growing regions and obviously to bring, you know, fertilizer and other inputs, you know, into the region. So we we're very thankful to have them and they're a critical, a critical piece of agriculture here in the U.S. And, you know, certainly I say they're a partner, um, you know, in trying to trying to help American agriculture be better. Very true. Another issue we've seen, this ties into supply chains and uh, very well could tie into next year. Spring planting 2023 has been drought issues. We saw, obviously, the river levels on the Mississippi and tributaries way down. A bit of a recovery there as we neared the end of the year and also you know, plenty of uh, early winter storm systems already giving us a lot of moisture across the northern plains, upper Midwest. That'll be good. Getting some moisture to parts of uh, the central plains, southern plains, southeast as well. So, you know, I, I look at things here as we near the end of the year, Richard, and it feels like a, a kind of a double edged uh, quote unquote win. It's taking time, but we're alleviating some of those drought concerns that we have it appears going into next year and and helping out those river levels a little bit. 
Yeah, we are. And, and, you know, we, I was on the Mississippi in September and was really quite surprised, you know, at the river levels. And this was probably the middle of September where we already had, we had some terminals that actually were not able to load barges um, a little farther south of St. Louis. Uh, and then obviously, as we talked earlier uh, in, in, in an earlier episode, just the channel width and depth was really limiting you know, the volume that you could put on the Mississippi. As you said, those have alleviated. Um, I don't know if they're back to like full capacity, um, you know, the ability to load all the barge toes, the width and, and load those as heavy as they normally can. I've talked to a lot of farmers that were really impacted, you know, by drought. Certainly in the West, um, you know, where we saw a lot of devastating drought, we, you know, we saw a lot of cattle that were liquidated, you know, which that's going to affect, that's going to affect the cattle market going forward for a couple of years, at least, because we literally have made the cow herd, the females um, in the U.S. herd, that number is significantly lower due to the drought. But as you mentioned, Upper Plains, Upper Midwest, a lot of uh, a lot of relief coming in the form of some quite a bit of snow and moisture events. And that's really going to put them in a good position to recharge and hopefully, you know, get them in a good position as they go into spring planting. Well, we will continue our conversation coming up next with Richard Fordyce of Osborne Bar Paramore. Back with more Market Talk right after this. The market news and analysis you need here on Market Talk. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to Market Talk. Jesse Allen with you here, our guest right now, Richard Fordyce, Business Growth Director of Agriculture at Osborne Bar Paramore. Richard, let's talk a little bit uh, about what's going on in D.C. Lame Duck Congress ongoing right now. We, we've got the political battles figured out. We know who's in control of each chamber of you know the House and the Senate. And, and looking at uh, a farm bill, that's going to be the big lift, it appears, into 2023. What are your thoughts? What is the latest you're hearing when it comes to this farm bill and, and what we could have in front of us and in store here as we get into 2023? Yeah, I, so I think, um, obviously, as we know, the Republicans now hold a slim majority in the House. Um, you know, the Democrats uh, will re- will retain control in the Senate. And so Chairman G.T. Thompson, he was just um, elected, uh, you know, just a, a few weeks ago, is going to have some priorities about where this, where the direction, at least of the conversation and priorities of where this 2023 Farm Bill will go. You know, I still believe that, you know, they say it's going to be budget neutral. And so any cost increases in some, in some titles will have to be offset in other titles or even within a title of the farm bill. If there are changes to what the, you know, what the cost is, that's going to have to be offset somewhere. Now, they say it's going to be budget neutral. Now, whether it will at the end of the day be budget neutral, you know, I don't know. And, and the reason I say that is, you know, we're experiencing 9% inflation. So what the, so the budget that the farm bill would have bought, you know, when they wrote the farm bill in 2018 doesn't buy the same thing as it does today. And so I think it'll be interesting to see where it is from a, you know, from a budget standpoint. And that's a little ways down the road uh, as far as the progress of the farm bill. But again, I think, you know, we've talked in the past, Jesse, you and I have a couple of things that I think are going to be interesting to watch. And that is, will there be legislation? So it'll be law of the land once the farm bill is passed, the ability to create more flexibility in crop insurance. And then what happens with the um, with the whole climate smart ag? And, you know, we've got groups, we got, we've got groups across the spectrum 
that are advocating for certain practices, certain rewards if farmers do certain things, you know, and, and I am less confident of where I think that'll land today than maybe I was a month ago. I think, mm-hmm. I mean, I think anything is going to potentially anything could be conversations happening daily from advocates of different approaches to different members of the House Ag Committee and the Senate Ag Committee too, for that matter. But I think those two things are going to be interesting to watch and see how they start to develop. I also think, you know, if we call it the 2023 Farm Bill, it literally has to be passed and signed by the president in 2023. There's a ton of work yet to be done. There's a ton of consensus that has to happen and, you know, uh, collaboration um, to get that thing finished. I don't know that we're I mean, I don't know that we're there yet. I'm really keeping my ear to the ground on this one to see kind of what the general um, temperature is of folks to kind of move things forward. But there is an opportunity for an extension of the 2018 Farm Bill. If they don't get the 20, if they don't get the 23 legislation done uh, and to the president's desk there, they can extend the 2018 Farm Bill which has happened a number of times. So it's not, you know, it's not something that we should be panicked about. And I would say that if they don't have it exactly where they think they need it and they can get the most consensus on it from, you know, everybody that's, you know, everybody that's weighing in on where that 23 farm bill should be, then they probably should extend it and get an opportunity to do a little bit more work on it. Well, I know as well, you brought up crop insurance. That seems to be the Biggest issue I hear from most every farm group I talk to is they want to make sure to protect that farm safety net and crop insurance. And I I know that is going to be a very vital piece of this farm bill, Richard. It is. So whether it's uh, allowing more flexibility um, for folks to insure crops, maybe in a little different way or at a different level, adding crops or adding cropping systems that currently aren't covered or aren't, you don't have the ability to do that. I think that's one of those things. And then, you know, we've talked about this before too, when, so we're looking at really the advancements in, um, in, in seed genetics and, you know, just the way folks are managing their cropping systems. Uh, Now, RMA does have the ability to move those planting dates, those early planting dates and late planting dates. And we've seen some movement there to more accurately reflect when folks are actually planting, you know, corn and soybeans and other uh, and other crops to be more reflective of, you know, what U.S. agriculture looks like today. I applaud those efforts and I would applaud any effort, whether it's through the legislation of the 23 Farm Bill or through a regulatory approach to continue to grant um, uh, flexibility in, in crop insurance. So, yeah, I think I think that's going to be a big conversation. And you just and, and you said it just a minute ago, Jesse, it is I mean, it's the premier safety net for farmers. You know, if you think about the you know, you think about the hundreds and we're getting close to thousands of dollars an acre invested to plant a crop. Man, I think uh, certainly uh, I think everyone is in agreement that we've got to maintain and support and maybe and maybe even you know, plus up crop insurance where we can. But um, so everybody agrees on that. I think maybe this flexibility conversation, you know, that might be where we would have, um, you know, different ideas from different groups. One other thing I wanted to pick your brain on, too. I know you're a cattle guy. We have the uh, cattle uh, contract library pilot is out there now. And there's this uh, there's the debate on the Grassley Fisher bill. And I know talking to various cattle groups, everyone's on different sides of this. Doesn't sound like it's going to be brought up until we get into the new Congress in January. 
when you talk to cattle folks, what do you hear when it comes to all this reform we're talking about in the cattle industry right now? Yeah, so I um, I hear the same thing, Jesse. It depends on who you talk to, what their perspective is, where they are in the value chain of, of the cattle business, right? Like, um, you know, cow-calf guy may have a different, or cow-calf producer, it could be a guy, it could be a lady, Um you know, a, a cow-calf producer might have a different perspective than, you know, a backgrounder or a stalker who may have a different perspective, um, you know, from someone who's finishing cattle. People who retain ownership, people who, um, you know, are going ahead and selling those cattle and letting somebody else finish them. And I don't, this is this does not, I am not saying this to be offensive. I'm actually saying this to be um, complimentary. But the, the cattle sector, so the U.S. cattle um, sector is probably the most complex when it comes to um, how producers feel about an issue. And everybody, everyone that's in that whole, that whole value chain of the cattle industry are all invested, right? So it's not, it's not somebody standing on the sideline who maybe doesn't understand the issue. From the perspective of that person's involvement in the cattle industry, their opinion matters and their opinion is going to be different than somebody else's. Right. And so I've I've done this for years. Back when I was director of the Missouri Department of Agriculture, we spent the whole entire year of 2015 trying to figure out how to add value to Missouri's cattle herd across the board. And it didn't take very long to figure out that's a hard thing to do. And I know I'm wandering here, but at the end of the day, I compared cattle producers to soybean producers. And there is such a difference in the, you know, in the complex of those two commodities, because if you're a soybean grower, every soybean grower, almost every soybean grower in the country is, is planting a seed. They harvest that seed, it goes to a processor, you get oil and you get meal and it goes to end users. Everybody in the soybean industry have the same motivations and objectives. Not everybody in the cattle sector have that. And it makes it difficult. And, you know, I mean, I don't know enough about it to talk about it as far as the the intricacies of it. But I applaud the Grassley-Fisher bill as trying to do something, right? You know, again, I and, and, and I will even tell you in Missouri, um, those conversations can differ whether you're in North Missouri or if you're in South Missouri. So it's really... I'm not answering your question at all, Jesse, but I do know that I think there's a general um, expectation that we get some reform. It's just getting it right, I think, is really hard. I couldn't agree more. And I, I could, I, it's a lot of what I heard too is that, you know, something I feel like could happen there. I guess, you know, we'll just have to wait and see what that something is. Richard, before we uh, wrap it up here for this month, again, I always appreciate the time and insight. Uh, any final thoughts you have as you just take a look at where agriculture sits right now here as we wrap up the year? Uh, yeah, thanks, Jesse, for the chance to do that. And I promise I'll be quick. Um, things are positive in American agriculture, really. Um, you know, we, we, talk, we talked a little bit more about cattle today than we have in the past. You know, and projections are good for the cattle market, you know, going out. And so I think things are positive um, moving forward. Again, there'll be challenges, no doubt about it. We'll keep our eye on those and we'll, you know, we'll mitigate those as best we can. Uh, that's what we do in agriculture. And with that, Jesse, I'd like to say probably a belated Merry Christmas, but certainly a Happy New Year to you and, and to all the listeners out there. Um, uh, wish you the very best and, and profitable 2023. 
Well, we appreciate the time. We'll wish you the same. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, and thank you for the time. With that, Business Growth Director of Agriculture with Osborne Bar Paramore, Richard Fordyce. Thanks for joining us, sir. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Sounds great. Thanks, Jesse. Up next, Dr. Meganita Werder with the Swine Health Information Center back with more Market Talk right after this. When it comes to protecting your investment in fuel and diesel-powered equipment, Diesel X Gold from FS clearly beats other diesel fuels. New detergents disperse contaminants to prevent sludge that plugs filters and causes unexpected downtime. And now, better moisture handling chemistry helps ensure your fuel stays dry, reducing microbial growth and fuel line freeze-ups. So when you're deciding what fuel to use, choose Diesel X Gold, absolutely the best fuel to power and protect your diesel equipment. Contact your local FS Energy Specialist today or visit GoFurtherWithFS.com. Market information that matters to you on Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now, she is the Associate Director of the Swine Health Information Center. Dr. Megan Niederwerder is with us. And uh, Megan, great to catch up with you again. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for joining us. I hope you're doing well. Yes, Merry Christmas, Jesse. Glad to be here. Appreciate the time, Megan. Let's dive right in. Got a couple things I want to talk about here today. Let's start with the uh, 2022 progress report from Schick. I know this news just getting released and just kind of looking at the year that has been. And I know you guys have covered just so much uh, with the Swine Health Information Center here. As you look at this progress report, can you go over some of the highlights for us? Sure. So the 2022 progress report we just presented in front of the National Pork Board Board of Directors on December 15th, and they approved that progress report. And now it's available on our website for anyone to review. Uh, we do have an executive summary at the beginning, which is a shorter, more condensed version of uh, the progress over the last year and then more details throughout the report. Uh, it's really been a, a great year as far as looking at uh, some of the research projects and their progress and their findings and those findings really informing the industry as far as prevention of disease, preparedness and response, early detection of emerging diseases. Uh, also, the uh, Wean to Harvest Biosecurity Research Program was formed over this last year with the uh, Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research and the Pork Checkoff. Uh, that's been a major effort of the Swine Health Information Center to really improve uh, wean to harvest biosecurity in that phase. Mm -hmm. And then the other major disease that we've really been monitoring and having quite a bit of activity in regards to is Japanese encephalitis virus. That was a virus that was introduced uh, and expanded in geographic range in Australia last year. And uh, the Swine Health Information Center put together a webinar to uh, inform and provide information to our stakeholders. And we also have funded research to look at what's the risk of introduction of that virus into the U.S. We're currently negative. We'd like to stay that way. But what are the highest risk areas or routes of introduction for that virus? And, uh, of course, what do we put in place to mitigate those risks? And then in October, we put together a symposium on JEB, trying to bring together uh, federal and state animal health officials, academic researchers, the Australian producers and animal health officials to look at 
what should the U.S. do to not only uh, prevent introduction, to, but to prepare a response document to know what we would do in the case of an introduction of JEB. So mm -hmm. those are some highlights of the progress report. Definitely. Well, and I know, I believe in the report, you guys mentioned and, and outlined with JEV how it could be compared to PED and that outbreak that we have with porcine epidemic diarrhea virus and how JEV could be the next PED if we don't take steps to try and mitigate it and understand it here in the U.S. Exactly. So when PEDV was introduced in 2013, we knew that it was circulating in other countries, primarily China, and that they were really having issues with PEDV. And uh, when it was introduced into the U.S. in 2013, that first year of introduction, we had about 10% production losses of the pigs in the U.S. due to mortalities. And that, of course, virus affects those neonatal piglets. So we saw high death loss in those uh, neonatal pigs, and it really impacted production. It impacted the number of pigs in the U.S. It, of course, um, cost the U.S. economically significant numbers of dollars because of that introduction. And today we still uh, battle that virus every day on the swine farm. Uh, there are, it's really an endemic disease now and one that uh, we continue to have issues with. And so uh, we know that prevention of entry of any new disease is really our best tool, uh, but we have to also be prepared. And so when we think about JEB and its introduction and, and expansion this last year into new ranges of Australia, we have to up the um, incre increase our efforts to prevent that uh, virus from uh, coming into the U.S. because in Australia last year, it caused them about a 6 to 10% production loss. So those numbers are very similar to that first year of introduction of PEDV into the U.S. Uh, we don't want to see that again. And so it's different from PEDV in that it causes reproductive outcomes on the sow and breeding farms, more abortions, uh, stillborns, mummified fetuses, but the other difference about it is that it's a mosquito-borne disease, so we have to think about mosquito control, and it also can infect humans. And so it's, it's different in those uh, characteristics from PEDV, but again, we're doing everything we can to uh, try and prevent entry. Megan, I want to talk a little bit about the Wean to Harvest biosecurity program you mentioned. I know uh, recently you guys, uh, the Swine Health Information Center, solicited for folks to recommend different things to study with that uh, program. And I believe it was 40-some recommendations you guys recently got. Could you talk a little bit about that as well? Yes. Yeah, so we released the Wean to Harvest biosecurity research program call for proposals on October 18th of this year. It was a program formed in uh, collaboration with FAR and Pork Checkoff, really based on vulnerabilities that we saw in the wean to harvest phase, uh, higher PEDV rates of um, infection, higher PERS virus rates of infection. Uh, it seemed like transportation played a major role in the APP outbreak this last year. So we formed this based on some of the data that we had analyzed over those first six months of 2022 released that call for proposals based on research priorities that had been formed by task forces made up of veterinarians and producers uh, and allied industry individuals to really identify what's going to 
provide the most value back to producers? Where can we really make the biggest impact on biosecurity? And we gave researchers about two months to prepare those proposals and to come up with ideas that address the research priorities that we had published. And our deadline was last Friday, December 16th, and we received an outstanding response, 41 individual proposals for that uh, research program uh, and very diverse proposals in both um, the funds requested, the timeline of uh, completion for the project or needs, the institutions by which we received those proposals, and of course the topics. And so we're really excited. This is gonna be a competitive process where we can uh, review those proposals and really select again the, the proposals uh, that are going to provide the most value to the industry. We do the selection process with uh, a recommendation task force. So we've put together another uh, two groups of individuals, one for site-based proposals and one for transport-based proposals. Those recommendation task forces, again, made up of producers, veterinarians, allied industry, academic uh, researchers that uh, review the proposals and then they make recommendations for funding. And then we work with uh, the Swine Health Information Board of Directors, as well as the uh, Foundation for Food and Agriculture representatives and Pork Checkoff uh, to again select those proposals for funding. We're anticipating finalizing that process or our goal is by the end of January next year. And then uh, those projects would be started probably early February 2023. So we're really excited about the response that we received. Well, Megan, before we run out of time, just to wrap it up real quick, a lot of great things you guys are doing with Schick. And as we look ahead to 2023, we know diseases don't stop, obviously. African swine fever, of course, is an issue. We've talked about JEV. I'm sure PERS is continuing to be an issue for some. PED is always out there as well. So as we look ahead to 2023, I would have to think those are issues and diseases that are remaining top of mind for the Swine Health Information Center. Is that the case? Or is there anything else you guys are really watching out for as we enter the new year? Yeah, I think you've hit a lot of the main points where, of course, global disease monitoring is an ongoing process, right? So we never know what the next disease potentially could be. And so continuing to monitor those, those global diseases as they come up and also look for new syndromes. So when you think about a new disease, it could initially present as just an unusual clinical signs that we are, that are either unexpected or out of the norm of the baseline that you may see in your herd. We want uh, producers and veterinarians to always be looking out for uh, those clinical signs that may indicate that something new, either a new strain of endemic diseases or a new disease has entered. Uh, again, our, one of our best defenses outside of prevention of entry is early detection so that we can detect any new disease in the U.S. herd and prevent spread as much as possible. The other thing as we look into 2023 would be uh, uh, encouraging producers and veterinarians to review their biosecurity protocols. What's one additional step, biosecurity step or protocol that you could potentially add to your day-to-day -day operations that uh, would better protect our industry? Because really, 
uh, we're in this together, and each one of us plays a role in uh, preventing disease across the industry. Well, we appreciate the time and the thoughts. And again, uh, folks can go to swinehealth.org to uh, look at all the different research and the different reports, the progress report as well, and, and see all the great things that the Swine Health Information Center is doing. With that, we'll wish you a Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Dr. Megan Niederwerder with the Swine Health Information Center. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Jesse. Well, coming up next, we're going to wrap up today's show and talk about water shortages in the Western U.S. We'll do that after the break. Back with more Market Talk right after this. Keeping you informed with the latest market information for your operation. This is Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to Market Talk. Thanks for joining us here today as we take a look at some news headlines here in the world of agriculture. Well, it's in the headlines, water shortages, droughts happening across the globe and right here in the United States. And it's starting conversations over who the water belongs to and how much it's worth. Brian Richter has been a global leader in water science and conservation for more than 30 years he is the president of Sustainable Waters, a global organization focused on water scarcity challenges. And he recently spoke at the Professional Dairy Producers Dairy Insights Summit. Brian explains what water shortages look like around the world and how it's already impacting the agricultural economy. Water scarcity. It's the situation where there's not enough water to meet all the existing needs for the water. That's happening in about a third of all the places around the planet. So all the rivers and groundwater aquifers, about a third of them are experiencing water scarcity conditions. And so the people that are dependent upon those water sources are very concerned about not having enough for the future. But ultimately, the issue really comes down to we become so dependent upon our local water sources and, we, and, and in some places we use them so heavily relative to how fast they're being naturally replenished that we can actually overuse them to the point where we can dry up a water source, we can dry up a river, we can cause a groundwater aquifer level to go down lower than most wells are reaching. Well, these shortages are happening here in the U.S. Richter explains that water scarcity is hitting the western United States in particular. It comes down to two reasons, less precipitation and increased use. He says irrigation is at the forefront of the conversation because it accounts for 86% of the total water use in the West. Richter notes that water shortages are starting to drive up prices. The economists know it's uh, it's it's reflects what we call scarcity pricing. So the more and more scarce a resource or a good becomes, oftentimes we see the price go up accordingly. And so just as one example, a lot of homeowners in eastern Colorado now are facing uh, the cost of their homes going up by 50 to 60,000 just for the purchase of a house because in order to supply that home with water, uh, the developer of that, of, that, of that housing development is going to have to go buy water rights from farmers to supply the homeowners. And so it's, it's adding up very quickly financially. Richter doesn't think price hikes will end there. He predicts food prices to go upward in the coming years. This is because water shortages are happening in key production areas of the United States. The water shortage situation has gotten to be so severe. The last couple decades have been the driest decades in the last 1,200 years. This is unlike anything we've, not only that we've ever seen, but we ever thought could happen. 
And what that means is that there's just not enough water to grow the same crops that we've been growing out there. And if you can't grow the same volume of crops, if they become more scarce out in the marketplace, then we're gonna end up having to pay more for them. So the prices will go up. Unfortunately, some of the places that are experiencing some of the most severe water shortages right now are the places that are among the most important in terms of our food supply here in the United States and for exporting to other countries. Places like the lower Colorado River, where 90% of the country's leafy vegetables are supplied during the winter time, and the Central Valley of California, which supplies us, for, supplies us with everything from fruits to nuts to all kinds of different vegetables. And those places are getting very, very hard to hit right now from water shortages. The short-term or emergency solution to save water out west is to fallow farm fields, taking land out of production for a growing season or longer. Richter expects the practice to increase. Farmers have historically fallowed for a couple of different reasons. Sometimes they want to just give their soil a rest and allow it to accumulate some nutrients again. Sometimes farmers, particularly in the Western United States, just don't have enough water. They don't have high enough priority water rights that, that in some years they don't have enough water and so they'll fallow a portion or all of their farms. So you're just leaving it barren essentially. And that process of fallowing, I'm expecting it to go on steroids in the, in the next few years. Because the water shortages are so severe and it has the potential of affecting water supplies for some of the biggest cities um, in the United States, like Los Angeles and Denver and Phoenix, San Diego, there's so much concern about the cities not having water that the governments and the cities themselves are willing to pay farmers not to use water temporarily for maybe a year or two years or three years so that there is more water in the system available to meet the other needs. But is taking farmland out of production a long-term solution? Richter says no. While following farm fields may work in an emergency, he argues it's not economically sustainable for local governments, farmers, or consumers. He advocates instead to change the type of crops grown in regions where water is limited, such as in the west and southeast. Fallowing is arguably a pretty good idea if you're in an emergency. So if you just need to save a lot of water in a hurry, uh, it can be an effective way of doing that because you're using essentially no irrigation water on those farms when you fallow them. But it's not such a good long-term solution for, for a number of different reasons. Obviously, uh, we don't want to lose too much farmland because we need it to produce our food and, and fiber um, for both our country and, rest, and the rest of the world. It's also that there are other solutions that I think are better, you know, for a long term. And they would be things like changing the particular crop that you're growing on the farm. And it would be a crop ideally that uses a lot less water and yet also generates the same or more revenue for the farmers. So it's attractive from the farmer's livelihood standpoint, but it's also attractive from the standpoint of saving water. And so I think my opinion is that we're going to see a lot of transformation in the crops that are being grown in the western United States and perhaps in some of the other um, areas of, of the country as well, perhaps down in the southeast as well. And he explains that water shortages in one region of the U.S. could be price supportive for another region, but he emphasizes that it's not good for a substantial portion of a country's industry to go out of business because it creates limited availability. Again, that is comments with Brian Richter, president of Sustainable Waters.
And that is all the time we have for Market Talk here today. Again, thank you so much for joining us, making us part of your day as we talk issues impacting rural America and the market trade. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Have a fantastic rest of your day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. When it comes to protecting your investment in fuel and diesel-powered equipment, Diesel X Gold from FS clearly beats other diesel fuels. New detergents disperse contaminants to prevent sludge that plugs filters and causes unexpected downtime. And now, better moisture handling chemistry helps ensure your fuel stays dry, reducing microbial growth and fuel line freeze-ups. So when you're deciding what fuel to use, choose Diesel X Gold, absolutely the best fuel to power and protect your diesel equipment. Contact your local FS Energy Specialist today or visit GoFurtherWithFS.com.